since tonight is singing night and next week I'll be out of town, this will be the last chance I have to speak to you for a few days. So I wanted to say a few things before I get started with the lesson this morning. Uh, first of all, if you have been keeping up with your daily Bible reading, you are 10% of the way through the Bible. You are uh, five weeks through a 50-week reading program, so good for you. Uh, keep up the good work. I told the kids today in class that those of you who are reading have presented me with some positive peer pressure to keep on schedule myself so that I don't uh, fall behind you guys. If you haven't been doing the daily Bible reading, it is never too late to get started. We're pretty much just now starting the book of Acts in the New Testament. I think we started in Acts 2 on Monday and finish up the book of Exodus, so we'll start into Leviticus. So there's always time to get started, never a bad time to start reading the Bible. Uh, also, I went by to see Bill Davis last night, and uh, I would just say to you that hospice has started to come to his house um, to help take care of him. And uh, last night he was about as weak as, as I've ever seen him. He was pretty much in bed the whole time. So they're holding off some treatment for a while, and then they'll try to regroup and figure out uh, some other options maybe that they have. I know that a lot of you have been calling and sending cards and helping them around the house and doing things for them, and they really do appreciate it. And uh, it's just an encouragement to me when I go over there and hear of all the good things you're doing for them. So I would just encourage you to continue to, to follow up with them as well as a lot of others in our congregation who have a continual need. Last Sunday I started a series with you that really has as its objective learning about the church at Jerusalem so that we can understand the kind of church that we ought to be. But I really felt like that rather than just dive right into the middle of Acts chapter 2, uh, really the end of it, which talks about the establishment of the church and what that church did, that it would really not be the best thing to do because we wouldn't have a context for how that church started. And so for that reason, I just started at the very first part of Acts chapter 2 with you last week, and I want to just pick up where we left off in our study last week. When I was first starting to do some preaching when I was in high school and then later when I, when I was in college and then when I started preaching full time, the hardest thing for me was to figure out what to preach about. I would waste all kinds of time trying to figure out ideas for sermon topics. And, and any time I could get my hands on an outline or a book of sermon outlines, it was like I had found a gold mine because it gave me uh, ideas of uh, lessons, lessons that I could do. And, of course, now I look back at some of those sermons, and I either don't even have any idea what I meant when I preached it, or I think it was a pretty bad sermon. Just kind of funny how, as time goes by, lessons that you thought were really good were, were really kind of mediocre. But this morning, I'm going to preach somebody else's outline to you, and I'm going to preach an old one. I'm going to preach one that's almost 2,000 years old this morning, basically what I want to do is preach what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and follow what he says as he makes the case that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. I would say to you that this morning that the Old Testament said a lot about the Messiah, but it lacked two key critical pieces of information that I really believe are the focus of Peter's sermon. 
Peter himself writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring about two things. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What Peter basically says is that while the prophets told us a lot in general terms about the coming of the Messiah, there were two specific things that the Old Testament prophets themselves did not have revealed to them. First of all, what specific time the Messiah would come. And secondly, what specific person would be the Messiah. And I would suggest for you that to a large extent, those two issues are the very foundation of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. I would say to you that in verses 14 through 21 of Acts 2, the what Peter is showing is that that day and time was the right time, the specific time for the Messiah to come into the world. I won't repeat all that we talked about last week. I would just remind you that he quotes from Joel 2 and says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days. That era of time that the Old Testament prophets spoke of as the day of the Messiah. And Peter says, this is it. This is the time the prophets spoke about. And then I would say to you that the rest of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 focuses on that other specific detail that the Old Testament prophets were not aware of. They did not know the exact time and they did not know the exact person. And so now what Peter is going to do on the day of Pentecost is preach to them from the Old Testament and explain to them that Jesus himself, Jesus of Nazareth, is in fact the Messiah, the Christ prophesied about in the Old Testament. So I would encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and follow along in Peter's lesson as he presents the case for Christ. And I'm going to set forth for you basically four points this morning in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Point number one is this, that Jesus was attested by God's works or by God's signs. This is found in verse 22. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The first thing that Peter says to these Jews is that the Jesus of Nazareth that some of you may have met, some of you may have seen in person, this man was attested by God. God bore witness. God confirmed this man is the Messiah. And the way that God confirmed that he was the Messiah was through the works that Jesus did by God's power. There are three words used in the New Testament to describe miracles, and all three of them are found here in Acts 2.22. There is the, the term that's translated here, mighty works. And what that means is that the miracle was of such magnitude of power that it was a mighty work, feeding 5,000 people from just a little bit of, of bread and fish. That's a mighty work. And then the other word is wonders, and what that refers to is 
the reaction of those who witnessed the miracle, that it was of such a magnitude of power that it produces awe in those who witnessed it. But the third word here is the one that I want to zone in on this morning. It is the word signs. In other words, these miracles were miracles with a message. Jesus performed miracles because he loved people, because he had compassion for people, because he wanted to relieve their suffering, because he came to do battle with the devil, and the devil uses sin and sickness and disease as a way to oppress people. So Jesus came to make war against that. But these miracles also had an important message, and the message they conveyed is that Jesus is the Messiah. This is because in the Old Testament, some of those passages that talked about the coming of the Messiah, specifically talked about the works that he would do. Do you remember when John the Baptist was in prison that he sent messengers to Jesus and basically put the question to him flat out, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? Whether he did that because John himself had some sense of doubt, maybe he's facing the end and he wants to make sure that what he's committed himself to is in fact the truth, or maybe he did it for the benefit of his followers, that once he was gone, they would have first-hand testimony from Jesus about his identity. I don't know. But when they go to Jesus, look at what Jesus says to them in Luke 7. He answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What Jesus is saying is, you go tell John the miracles you've seen me do because these miracles in and of themselves convey the message. I am the one the prophets looked forward to. I am the Messiah. And by the way, I would just point out that while all of these other things are extraordinary miracles, nobody in the Old Testament ever healed a blind person. Only Jesus does that in the Bible. While these are all extraordinary miracles, there is one hallmark of the coming of the Messiah that is not miraculous, but nevertheless is out of the ordinary. And that is, as Jesus says, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Because it is so easy to overlook or look down upon those who are downtrodden and those who are disadvantaged in society. It must have been true in that day and time. I know it's true in our day and time. And what a great message we can send to the world that the Messiah has come and that he loves them if we will have the same zeal to give the gospel to those who are not as well off as we are and not from the same social strata that we are. But we want them to know that Jesus has come and he's going to make a difference even in their life. So Jesus was attested by God's signs or by God's works. Here's the second point of Peter's lesson. Jesus was crucified by God's design. Look back over with me at Acts 2. I read verse 23 to complete the sentence of verse 22, but let's read it again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was important for Peter to make the point here that what some of them may have just witnessed just a few weeks earlier, was not the result of events spiraling out of Jesus' control. It was not some ugly and unfortunate mob reaction that Jesus had no power over, but rather what they saw happen when Jesus was put to death 
was the unfolding of a plan of God that was rooted in eternity. That what happened when Jesus was put on the cross was the fruition of ages of redemptive planning by God. In fact, Jesus himself made this point to the disciples over and over again three times in the Gospels. He specifically told the disciples what was about to happen to them. Luke 9.21 says, He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Curious as to why Jesus says that they're not to say anything about this yet. And yet the clue we have here in Acts 2 is that there was a predetermined plan by God's foreknowledge There was a right time for this to happen. There was a schedule God had in mind. And the reason Jesus told his disciples here, don't tell anyone about what you've seen. It was just up on the Mount of Transfiguration. is because the more people know about me, the more popular I will become, the more energized the opposition will be, and then that's when I'll be put to death. And there's a special time for this to happen. And inherent in that statement is Jesus' own understanding that there is a specific plan and predetermined time by God through his foreknowledge for this to take place. So what these Jews have just witnessed was not anything that they did. Oh yeah, they were the ones who shouted crucify him and it was their leaders that had him sentenced to death and that persuaded Pilate to put him to death. But really what Peter wants them to see is this was God's plan. And it was his plan all along. In fact, I noticed something a couple of weeks ago. If you'll turn with me over to Luke chapter 22. Excuse me, Luke chapter 20. Yeah, Luke, Luke 22. Every other Friday, I go over to where Miss Waldine uh, lives and, and teach a Bible class over there. And it's been a neat experience for me because I've learned so much just reading through the Gospels. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke. And I noticed something the last time we were in Luke chapter 22. And you may remember this detail. It's found in Luke 22 verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, When you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. I've read that account several times, but the thought crossed my mind when I was studying with Miss Waldine and her friends a couple of weeks ago that it seems to me part of the significance of this is that the disciples are going to come to understand what they were about to eat was not some meal thrown together at the last minute, but obviously Jesus has made preparation beforehand and can tell them beforehand, here's what you will find, here's who you will find, here's where you will find it. As if to say, what we're about to eat tonight has been predetermined and planned which in a small way represents the whole scheme of what's going to happen on the Passover when Jesus himself was put to death. This wasn't some random chance event. It was something that happened by God's special plan and program. So Jesus was attested by God's works. Jesus was crucified by God's design. Here's the third point that Peter makes. 
Jesus was raised according to God's oath. Now, no one could dispute the fact that Jesus had performed signs. No one could dispute the fact he'd been crucified. This, of course, is an issue of contention. And so Peter spends a lot of time developing this point. Look with me in verse 24 of Acts 2. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he uses as a text to prove his point, Psalm 16. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, a few weeks ago, or I guess a couple of months ago now, when we were going through the Psalms on Wednesday night, we looked at Psalm 16 as a part of a group of Psalms sometimes known as the Confidence Psalms, where the psalmist expresses the assured hope that God will deliver and rescue from some peril. And I make the point to you that as you read that psalm where David says, the Lord will not allow his Holy One to see corruption, you might be tempted to read it as, for example, the story of Hezekiah. Remember when God sent the prophet and told Hezekiah, set your house in order for you will die and not live, and he prayed and his life was extended? And we might think of other examples, either in David's life or the lives of other kings, where there was a threat that God intervened and delivered them. But Peter's going to make an application of this psalm that no Jew had ever thought of before. And that is, while it is true that God saved David from Saul, for example, or that God saved Hezekiah from his illness, or other kings who were under threat or siege, all of them did eventually die. And yet he says this in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In fact, you could pretty much say the same thing today. This is the actual sepulcher of David that the Jews still revere and consider to be the place where David was buried. And what Peter's saying here is that when David writes in Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption, he might have been saved temporarily from this or that crisis, but he did eventually die and he did see corruption. We could go to his tomb right now and open it up and see whatever dusty remains there are of David. And so he says, therefore, verse 30, being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, promise found in 2 Samuel 7, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. He says, verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. What I want you to see is, is that Peter argues the case for the resurrection. He's going to make two basic points. Point number one is this. The tomb of Jesus is empty. And the reason I know that's what Peter is arguing here is because he has just said, we know that Psalm 16 cannot apply to Jesus, or rather cannot apply to David, because David's tomb has his body in it. He was left to see corruption. We could go open it up and take a look. 
Therefore, Psalm 16 must apply to Jesus because, it is implied, his tomb is empty. And the fact of the matter is, any Jew on Pentecost who wanted to challenge this assertion, all he had to do was walk a few minutes and go to the tomb of Jesus and open it up and produce the body and say, Peter, you're wrong, and no one ever did that. So Peter's first point is, Jesus' tomb is empty because Psalm 16 cannot ultimately and finally apply to David. His body did see corruption. Jesus did not. And then the other argument Peter makes is in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We the eleven, we have all seen him. We all saw Jesus. We saw him in the upper room when he showed himself to us. We saw him on the seashore when he ate broiled fish. We saw him when, when he ascended we saw him. We have seen the risen Lord. The reason his tomb is empty is because he came out of it and we saw him. Now that is, Jesus, or that is Peter's argument about the resurrection. The tomb of Jesus is empty and we saw him. I would just say that today most skeptics, when they try to deal with the problem of the resurrection, say that the reason that the disciples believed Jesus rose from the dead is because they wanted so desperately to believe that he rose from the dead that essentially they, they hallucinated it. They had mystical visions and confused that with the risen Lord. Two problems real quick. Number one, they saw him together. They saw him at the same time. Do you all want to have a group hallucination this morning? All right, purple elephant on three. One, two. Well, no, you don't have group hallucinations. And not only that, if this had just been a visionary experience, all you would have had to have done is go out to the tomb and bring the corpse and say, Peter, you're wrong. You're seeing things. Here is the body of Jesus. They never did that. And so this is Peter's argument for the resurrection. God raised Jesus, and he raised him because of this oath that he would not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. And that he had sworn that one of his descendants would be on the throne. Fourth point in Peter's lesson is that Jesus was enthroned according to God's promise. Look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You know, it is almost as if Peter is saying that in a secondary sense, everybody there in Jerusalem on that day were witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Insofar as they have seen happen exactly what Jesus told them would happen when he rose from the dead. That is, that he would send the helper of the Holy Spirit. And they've all seen that. And Peter says, you've seen. You're witnesses of this. And then here is the promise in particular. Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and then he quotes here from Psalm 110. He says, the Lord said to my Lord. So Psalm 110 is a psalm of David, as Peter tells us here. And he mentions two figures. If you go back and look in Psalm 110, you have the same word Lord, but spelled slightly differently. The first Lord is spelled in all capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When that's found in the Old Testament, it is the Old Testament translator's way of telling us that is the name that God gave to Moses, Yahweh, I am. 
And what David says is, the Lord said to my Lord. This is a different Hebrew word. It's the word Adonai. And David says, the Lord said to my Lord. doesn't say this to David. He says it to David's Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And what Peter is telling us here on Pentecost is that because they've seen the outpouring of the Spirit, they know that Jesus has gone away as he promised and sent them the Holy Spirit. And where he has gone is to the Father's right hand where he has now been enthroned and installed as king exactly as David saw in Psalm 110. This psalm is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. And you can see why. Because it is such a profound prophecy of the Messiah. Do you remember how Jesus used this psalm incidentally when he had a debate with the Pharisees? The final week, Jesus goes into the temple. And all these different groups just come flying at him wanting to debate him. The Herodians come and want to pick a fight over paying taxes. Remember that? Whose image is on the coin and so forth? The Sadducees come and want to debate about the resurrection. The man who dies and the uh, same woman marries his brother. He dies and marries seven of them and then in the resurrection. Remember that one. But then after that, Jesus turns the tables. He goes on the offensive. He goes to the Pharisees and he says, i got a question for you. Whose son is the Messiah? They said he's David's son. And then he says, well, if that is the case, how is it then that David calls him Lord? And then he quotes this passage. Because normally the son of a king is of lesser rank, right? The son of a king is the prince. How is it that the Messiah, who you've just told me is David's son, is called by David his Lord? And you know what their answer was? They couldn't answer it. Now think about that. How could the Lord, Adonai here, be both David's son... And David's Lord at the same time. And the answer, and the reason I believe the Jews could not answer is because the solution was something they had never thought of. That the Messiah would be both man, he would be man, a descendant of David. But at the same time, the Messiah would also be God in the flesh. And therefore, David could refer to him as Lord. And only Jesus could fulfill that unique position as one who was both God's son and David's son. And David's Lord at the same time. That's Peter's sermon. He brings it to a conclusion in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. That God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now in the next lesson I want to talk about the response of the people. But before I do that I want you to think with me in broader terms. About the preaching that Peter did here in Acts chapter 2. Remember, where I'm going with this series is for us to think about the kind of church we should be. And what I want us to think about here in Acts 2 is what kind of church was produced by what kind of preaching. In other words, if we want to be the kind of church that we're going to read about later in future lessons, the real issue is how does such a church even begin? What is the preaching that would lead such a church into existence? And here's some points I want you to think about from Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. The kind of preaching that will produce a church that God is pleased with is preaching that is rooted and focused on Scripture. 
Think of all the scriptures Peter's used here in Acts 2. He started with Joel 2, in the last days, the Spirit will come forth. Then he went to Psalm 16, the promise that the Holy One would not undergo decay. He mentioned 2 Samuel 7, that God had sworn with an oath that one of David's descendants would be on the throne. He concludes with Psalm 110. This is a sermon packed with scripture. And if we want to be the kind of church God wants us to be, it will be only because we are a church that is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that is, through what these men have taught, through what Scripture says. Paul told Timothy, preach the word, and that is going to be the thing that drives a church. Now, you can have a church with all other kinds of ways. You can have a church that's built on all other kinds of foundations, but a church that will be pleasing to God is one built on preaching rooted in Scripture. In the second place, Peter's sermon was focused on Christ. And I would just say to you that you can read Acts 3, his sermon there in the temple. You can read in Acts chapter 7 what Stephen has to say. You can read in Acts chapters 8 and 9 and 10, all through the rest of this book. And the sermons the apostles preach are focused on Jesus Christ and his death and burial and resurrection. That doesn't mean that's all there is to what the Bible says. But what it does mean is that the rest of what the Bible says is built on this foundation of a central focus on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And frankly, brothers and sisters, what other story would we want to base what we do on? This is the greatest story ever told. It is a story that the very power of it has an impact on the lives of people if they will listen to it. I've told you this story before, but when my friend Omer became a Christian and I asked him what was the difference, he said, I read the Gospels. It's a great story. And what we preach has got to be rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that will give engine and drive and catalyst to everything else that we practice and do by constantly hooking ourselves back into the truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. And finally, the kind of preaching that will produce a church that God is pleased with is preaching that is aimed at the heart. I almost didn't use this word. Because in our culture, the heart has come to mean something much different from the Bible. In our culture, it's just some fuzzy emotional feeling. Like here in a couple of weeks, a bunch of people are going to get cards. I'm not going to get any, but some of you are going to get cards from people on February the 14th. It's got a bunch of hearts drawn on them. And that's supposed to represent, you know, mushy, syrupy, soupy. I'm so jealous. Mushy, syrupy, sentimental love. That's what hearts mean in our culture. That's not what the heart means in the Bible. In the Bible, the heart refers to the deepest inner recess of who a person is. That's why the heart is used to symbolize it. It's deep on the inside of us. It represents the intellect. It represents the will. That's why Jesus could tell people, your heart is far from me. That deep on the inside, it was not their true motive to serve him. The reason I use the term is because it's what the Bible says here in Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Preaching that will produce a church that God is glorified in is preaching that will appeal to people's reason, as Peter does here, and explain reasons for what you believe, and then storms the citadel of the will to compel them to be confronted with the truth of Jesus and to make a decision about who he really is. 
It is not making people feel good. It is not fuzzy emotionalism. It is preaching that cuts to who we are at the deepest part of our being and makes us deal with the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Now what are you going to do about it? And that's what these people were confronted with at Pentecost. And my friends, that is what all of us must be confronted with this morning. Let's take our song books out, please, and turn to the invitation. There were a lot of people at these Jewish feasts. The temple area could have held well over 100,000 people. And remember, this is one of the feasts that all Jews were commanded to go to each year. And the Bible says in verse 37 that they were cut to the heart, which I presume means generally across the board when these people heard this message that it hit them. It hit them right square in the eyes. But as we learn later on in verse 41, only about 3,000 responded. Now that's a lot. I'm persuaded it was a small percentage of those who were there. And what that says to me is the truth of what Jesus taught in the parable of the sower. That there are some people who the word of God just never even has a chance because they just don't care at all. The wayside soil. I would hope that's not anybody here this morning. I would hope that every one of us here has given scripture the respect and hearing that it deserves. And then there are some people who the word of God touches them but only on a very superficial level. Maybe that was, that was some of these people here. Maybe they, they could still only see a bunch of ignorant hillbillies from Galilee who they thought were drunk. And that's all they got out of this lesson. And then there are some who believe for a while, Jesus described that, the thorny soil that believe for a while but in time of temptation fall away. And I think we've all seen people who respond to the gospel like that. They, it's planted in their heart and they respond with joy so immediately. But then when the true reality of what it means to call the name of Jesus as your Lord, that he is the absolute ruler of your life, it's too much. But then there were 3,000 who I think were probably representative of the, of the soil that was the good soil, the honest and good heart. When the word of God has been preached, it has been a success. Whether people respond as they should is really up to them. But it's their success or their, their failure, not the words. And this morning, if you need to respond in a way that gives glory to the Lord, putting your faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose again, turning from your sins, and accepting the promise of God, even as Peter gives it here in verse 38, that as you repent and are baptized for forgiveness of sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that God incorporates you into his family, we encourage you to respond this morning while we stand and sing together.